2: Hello, my name is Justin Hamilton and welcome to a new episode in Season 2 of Big Squid. Today, we're covering the song Lazarus, which is not just the third song on David Bowie's Black Star album, but also the title of the play he created in the lead up to his death. This song also presented us with the last film clip Bowie released while he was still alive, and his final bow is full of wordplay and mischief, as you'd come to expect. I'll also share with you at the end of the podcast the one performance I would have loved to have seen live, even though it just may have broken my heart in the process. But for now, it's time for you to look up here, man. I'm in danger, and I've got nothing left to lose. One of those songs is Dollar Days, which we will cover in episode 6 of this season. Lazarus is the other song, with the lyrics and the film clip feeling like a portent to a major event we couldn't quite fathom in the moment. Even the way the beat of the drum is used to open and close the song feels like a heart doing its best to stay alive. It is easy in hindsight to say this song was a cryptic clue about Bowie's deteriorating health and the possibility of his death. But to be honest, that wasn't my first impression. I knew the song was from the play Bowie was writing, so my assumption was that it was essentially a character piece for the lead character. Lazarus was being talked about as a sequel of sorts to the 70s movie The Man Who Fell to Earth, which starred Bowie as the alien Thomas Jerome Newton. Bowie wasn't appearing in the stage play, and instead the role of Newton was being played in New York by Michael C. Hall, who is best known for his roles in Six Feet Under and Dexter. Upon first listens of the song, it was easy to see how initial interpretations could centre on Newton. In the movie, Bowie's Newton is an alien who has come to Earth in search of water to save his family on this arid and desolate planet. He uses his superior knowledge of technology to create inventions he patents and then profits from. While he slowly builds his fortune, he falls in love with a woman called Mary Lou, but much worse, he develops a taste for alcohol and sinks into a deep depression. Just as he's about to develop a way to transport water back to his planet, the US government abducts him, and in his alcoholic state, he's incapable of fighting back. Eventually, he discovers he's incapable of leaving Earth, so he records an album full of alien messages that he hopes will be broadcast back to his home planet and to his family. The movie ends with Thomas drunk and broken, incapable of dying, trapped on our world. With the movie in mind, the lyrics seemed to hint where the stage play may be taking the character, so I had little warning of what lay ahead. To be honest, I was so in the dark that Bowie could even be ill that I had been holding out hope that he would perform some live shows again. I didn't think he would tour again, but I thought there was a possibility he'd perform intimate shows where he lived in New York, and I was more than willing to fly overseas to see Bowie live. It was frustrating being a Bowie fan in Australia in the 90s, as he stopped touring here after the Glass Spider tour. His last gigs in Australia were in November of 1989, when he performed with his band Tin Machine in an impromptu show at a venue called Moby Dick's at Whale Beach, which is roughly 40 kilometers north of Sydney. They had recorded their second album at Studio 301 in Sydney, but by the time I heard this news, Bowie was long gone. Then in Australia, we missed the Sound and Vision Tour in 1990 and the Tin Machine Tours that went from 91 to 93. We didn't get to see the Outside Earthling and Hours Tours that made up the rest of the decade. I was particularly bummed at not having a chance to see the tour where Bowie toured with Nine Inch Nails because not only was I a fan of Trent Reznor, but the Outside album is one of my favourites. Heart's Filthy Lesson, Hello Space Boy, I'm deranged, Through These Architects' Eyes, Strangers When We Meet, Wishful Beginnings, and especially the motel are still played regularly here at Chateau de Hameau. I also couldn't afford to fly to New York for his 50th birthday bash at Madison Square Garden in 1997, where he shared a stage with Robert Smith, the Foo Fighters, Lou Reed, Frank Black, Billy Corgan and Sonic Youth. In the 90s, I was breaking into the Australian stand-up comedy circuit and earning hundreds of dollars a year, so travelling overseas was slightly beyond my financial capabilities. By the time I was earning a good living from comedy, I vowed that if Bowie wasn't going to return to Australia, I would go to him, which I finally did in 2003 for his reality tour. We'll talk more about that in the next episode. But... After Bowie suffered a heart attack on stage in 2004, it appeared that he'd retired from the public eye and I was consigned to the fact that his touring life was over. To be honest, I would much prefer the man stay in good health than put all of it on the line by touring, but from a selfish fan point of view, it was disappointing. Then he released The Next Day and Blackstar, and I hoped against hope that the great man would perform again. Maybe theatre shows in New York where he'd sing songs and regale the audience with stories. He was a great raconteur, and he had music that sounded full of energy, and it was strange, and it was inspiring. If he was going to tour, even on a small scale, I had a credit card, and I wasn't afraid to use it. So when I first heard Lazarus three weeks ahead of the unveiling of the album, I was beginning to dream of sitting in an audience hearing these new songs live. It wasn't until I saw the film clip that I had that first sense of unsettlement. Let's dive straight into the Squid Bits part of the podcast and let's dig into these lyrics, starting with the title. There are two characters called Lazarus in the Bible, and sometimes they can be conflated to be the one person, but this is incorrect. In the Gospel of John, there is Lazarus of Bethany, a devout follower of Jesus Christ. When he becomes ill, his sisters let Jesus know that he doesn't have long to live. Jesus travels to Bethany, but when he arrives, Lazarus is dead. Everyone heads to where Lazarus was laid to rest. Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away from the tomb, he says a little prayer, and calls forth the dead man. Lazarus appears, and this miracle begins the inevitable journey that will lead to Jesus' death. There is also Lazarus who appears in the Gospel of Luke, in the parable of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. This is the story where a rich man treats the beggar poorly, but when they both die, the rich man looks up to heaven and sees Lazarus sitting by the side of Abraham. Meanwhile, the rich man suffers eternal damnation down in Hades, the hellfire burning his skin and soul. The rich man begs Abraham to let Lazarus give him cool relief, but Abraham refuses. Then the rich man begs Abraham to let Lazarus return to the land of the living and warn his family to change their ways so they won't end up alongside him in Hades. Abraham rejects his request declaring that even someone returning from the Deadlands wouldn't be able to convince them to change their ways. So which Lazarus is Bowie referencing? The common interpretation is that Bowie is referring to the Lazarus Jesus brings back to life. The interpretation concludes that by alluding to this version of Lazarus, Bowie is hoping for a resurrection of his musical career after his death. I think this interpretation is influenced by the fact that Blackstar was a huge commercial success, but as we've noted in previous podcasts, Bowie wasn't initially planning on this album being his final release and still had plans to make more music. I also don't think this Lazarus reflects the story that drives the play. The play Lazarus is about an alien trapped on earth far from his loved ones, incapable of fulfilling his duties, a loner who drinks to numb himself to the pain of existence. He's haunted by his past and longs to escape the world by either returning to the stars or embracing death, both of which he is incapable of doing. James Nicola, the artistic director of the New York Theatre Workshop where Lazarus debuted, described the play as a hallucinatory journey about choosing to live or yearning to be set free from this plane of existence. And that sounds more like the story of The Rich Man and the Beggar. Listen to the opening lyrics and see what you think. Is the alien begging us to rethink our ways while we are capable of change? We know he's absurdly rich from all his technological achievements, but now that he's trapped above everybody, literally in a New York apartment and emotionally from the world, is this the lament of someone looking back on their failures and wishing they could do it all again? By the time he drops his phone, which we all know is a device used for communication, he's alone again, repeating the same actions over and over as he flippantly asks, Ain't that just like me? When we segue into the next verse, we hear Newton sing, Keeping with the Bible theme, this feels more like the story in Luke's Gospel about the prodigal son. This is the story of a son who travels to the city and lives the high life, but loses everything and eventually returns to his father to find forgiveness and acceptance. This could represent the life Newton lived on earth, seduced by alcohol and the desires of a life here that helped him lose sight of what he was supposed to achieve. This section of the lyrics could also be inspired by Bowie's manager during the Ziggy Stardust era, Tony DeFries, who was an infamous wheeler and dealer who became well known for the way he spent Bowie's money. DeFries believed that if the neophyte Bowie was to be considered a star, then you have to act accordingly. And what do stars do very well? They spend money. So when Ziggy first visited America, DeFries lavishly spent more and more of Bowie's money to give the impression he was the biggest act on the planet. These unchecked spending sprees eventually led to Bowie being in all sorts of financial difficulties in the mid to late 70s and would eventually pave the way for the making of Let's Dance, where Bowie hired Niles Rogers to help him create some of the biggest hits of his career and help him get back on track financially. When considering the title of Lazarus, there's possibly one final reference to consider. Emma Lazarus was an American author and poet who wrote the sonnet, The New Colossus. If you go to the Statue of Liberty, you can see her words inscribed on a bronze plaque on the statue's pedestal. When in early development of the play, Bowie had been thinking about artists who were popular in their time but lacked critical appreciation today, in contrast to other artists whose work managed to live on and find a new audience well after their death. The New Colossus was reprinted at the end of the Lazarus scriptbook, and I have some thoughts to come later about what this could add to the meaning of the title. So if we take the beggar man Lazarus, mix him with a taste of the prodigal son, a dash of a female poet, and the lessons learned from the Ziggy experience, it feels like the title is referring to a person close to the end of his life, who looks back at his younger self and wishes they'd taken a better path through life than the one they find themselves on now. This could be the story of Thomas Jerome Newton, but it might also possibly be a lament from Bowie. Let's listen to the final lines. It is often seen as a symbol that represents positivity and the yearning for freedom. In biblical terms, it represents giving yourself up to the beauty of nature that surrounds you. You should spend more time appreciating the environment that God has given you. It can also be speaking to the creative spirit, how we should disregard the stifling conventions that stop our imaginations from reaching new heights. Some Native American tribes believe that the bluebird is a symbol of a new tomorrow. In dreams, they warn you to be aware of upcoming struggles, but also that you don't need to worry as these challenges will resolve themselves. The bluebird can be seen as an omen and that when you see a bluebird, you should think of a person who you are close to, as it means they're either sending you a message or thinking fondly of you. Journalist Tim Jones in The Guardian said it also reminded him of the Charles Bukowski poem Bluebird, which also uses the bird as a symbol of captivity and release. The poem goes... There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke. And the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? You want to screw up the works? You want to blow up my book sales in Europe? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: I only let him out at night sometimes when everybody's asleep. I say, I know that you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back, but he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die, and we sleep together like that with our secret pact, and it's nice enough to make a man weep. But I don't weep, do you? The Bluebird could also be a reference to Morris Madelink's 1908 play The Bluebird, which tells the story of a brother and a sister who help a little girl whose illness can only be cured by the magical Bluebird of happiness. This was made into a movie starring Liz Taylor in 1976 and was a major flop at the cinema. Bowie luckily turned down a role in that very movie. Finally, the bluebird could be a reference to American socialite and amateur soprano Florence Foster Jenkins and her song Like a Bird. While Jenkins was labelled the world's worst opera singer and was a cult figure despite her technical incompetence, Bowie was an enthusiast and named her album The Glory of the Human Voice as one of his favourites. Since we can surmise how the song relates to the play, let's take a look at the film clip and see how it directly aligns with Bowie. Once again filmed by Johan Renck, the first thing you notice about the video is that it is shot in a one-to-one ratio, which the director suggested as an idea to help give the visual a claustrophobic atmosphere. The clip opens on an ornate wardrobe in a hospital that appears desolate, possibly abandoned. Slowly, a ghostly hand emerges, but before we can discover who it could belong to, we are reintroduced to Bowie as button eyes. He lays in bed, writhing and twisting, the sheets pulled up to his face as he sings, Look up here, I'm in heaven. The camera pulls back and Button Eyes continues to sing, I've got drama, can't be stolen. By the time he declares, everybody knows me now, an androgynous childlike creature is revealed to be hiding underneath the bed, that same hand reaching up for Button Eyed Bowie in his bed. Bowie begins to rise, the camera rotating around him, as if he's being drawn elsewhere. We cut to the trickster version of Bowie, dressed in a diagonally striped outfit. The trickster is imbued with energy, posing, sneering, his movements looking like an ancient mime, stilted and jerky. While Button Eyes sings, confined to his bed, the trickster sits at his desk, desperately searching for inspiration. An idea forms and he begins to write. He stops. He takes a moment to ponder. He begins to write again as the childlike figure who was once under the bed now crouches underneath his desk at his feet, waving a finger to and fro. The trickster has more ideas and continues to write in his book. Is this the gospel of the Black Star we saw the Bowie prophet wielding in the first film clip? Whatever his ideas are, they can't be contained as his writing slips from the page, ignoring whatever lurks under his desk, waiting impatiently for him to pay it attention. Finally, Button Eyes stops singing and falls back onto the bed. He reaches out his arms as a figure in the shadows in turn reaches out for Button Eyes. The trickster witnesses this moment and with his writing finished, leaves the book on the desk next to a jewel-encrusted skull. The trickster walks backwards into the wardrobe and shuts the door, the video fading to black. Renk has said that he thought the song was about the biblical tale of Lazarus rising from the dead, but in hindsight, he believes Bowie saw it as the tale of someone in his final nights. This would make sense because just before filming commenced, Bowie was told that his cancer was terminal, that treatment would be stopping and the end was in sight. But during the shoot, Bowie was in good spirits, wanting the video to retain a lightness of touch that the video for Black Star also contained. Even though Bowie needed constant breaks, he joked with the crew throughout. There's fascinating imagery found throughout the video. The jewel-encrusted skull from Blackstar doubles as Major Tom, providing one last bout of inspiration. And also a memento mori, an artistic or symbolic reminder of the inevitability of death. Or maybe it is a shout-out to Hamlet's mate Yorick, who himself became a symbol to the Dane for the fleeting nature of human life. Ah, Major Tom, I knew him well. Rank said the figure that lurks throughout the clip was his idea, a representation of childhood fears, the thing that lurks in the wardrobe, under the bed, below the desk. It is also the idea of disease lurking in all parts of Button Eye's life. In the end, it becomes death waiting in the shadows, and as he sang when he covered Jacques Brel's My Death at the final Ziggy concert, My death waits there in a double bed, sails of oblivion at my head. So pull up the sheets against the passing time. Bowie sketched out ideas for the video and said apart from Button Eyes, the other role he plays, which I've interpreted as the trickster from the Blackstar clip, for Bowie was known as the Somnambulist. As this character, Bowie wears the same outfit he wore in a photo shoot to promote Station to Station. In some of the photos, Bowie draws the Carbalistic Tree of Life. I'd drawn a parallel to Station to Station when I first heard Blackstar, so to see Bowie recalling this album through his attire was startling. With Lazarus being the third song on the album, I then wondered if we could see a reflection in the Station to Station LP. This lines Lazarus up with Word on a Wing, a song Bowie referred to as a hymn, written in an incredibly dark time in his life, and in retrospect, a cry for help. It is a song about looking for meaning and believing in a higher being, but at the same time rejecting the institutions of God. How can you find a direct line to heaven when there is so much in the way? Is there a correlation between word on a wing's cry for salvation and the Lazarus' lament that it is all too late now? Returning to the idea of this character being the somnambulist, this reflects Bowie's fascination with Conrad Veidt's character in the movie The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where the title character uses a sleepwalker to commit murders and robberies. Do we therefore presume this Bowie character to be the sleepwalking half of Button Eyes, dreaming of the work he still desires to create, the final thoughts he desperately needs to share, and when Button Eyes finally dies, it is time for the trickster to be subsumed by the collective unconsciousness? The wardrobe is also a strong metaphor, with its use in the Chronicles of Narnia as a gateway to elsewhere. It could also be seen as a coffin. Bowie was also an icon of style and fashion, so a wardrobe is a fitting place to hang this final character alongside the many costumes his previous inventions wore over the years. An interesting tidbit about this scene is that the idea of Bowie retreating into the wardrobe was improvised on the day, the idea either coming from Rank or coming as a suggestion from a crew member. Rank said that Bowie had to think about the idea, smiled and said, that will keep them guessing, won't it? And here we are, years later, proving that Bowie was right yet again. Let's go full horseshoe and return to the work of Emma Lazarus' sonnet, The New Colossus. Her words, as I've already told you, are found on the Statue of Liberty, and they contain a contrast between this monument and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, The Colossus of Rhodes. The Colossus was a gigantic 33-metre-high statue made out of bronze and depicted the sun god Helius straddling the harbour and was one of the first things to greet incoming travellers. The statue didn't in fact straddle the harbour, but Emma uses this myth about the Colossus for her own means. One could interpret the sonnet by Emma as saying that this is a new age and that their female and welcoming statue will be seen as a nurturing and caring figure, a beacon of support for those who have been exiled from their own countries, as opposed to the masculine message the Colossus radiated. With Emma's words in mind, and maybe that interpretation, was the song in the play Lazarus even more intimate than we first noticed? Is Lazarus about a rejection of the material world? But is it also about rejecting the wearisome male all-conquering approach? Is there a possibility that this is about embracing a new feminine ideal for the future? We know Bowie had the woman in the Black Star film clip wear a tail as he believed there was something sexual about it and had watched as society's view on gender began to radically change. He wanted to show a new type of person, untethered by old-fashioned views. With all of this in mind, is this possibly Bowie's message to his then-teenage daughter that being a slave to wealth and luxury isn't the way to live a life, and that the only way to find solace is to make your own way in the world while being kind to those around you? Am I reading too much into this? I'm a Bowie fan during a pandemic, so I probably am. But it does make you wonder. Before I finish up, as you know, a lot of research is going into this season, and once again, I want to give a shout-out to Chris O'Leary's books Rebel Rebel and Ashes to Ashes, and my personal Bible, Nicholas Pegg's The Complete David Bowie. I also learned some interesting facts through Misha Ketchell at the Conversation site, a great article there, and there are numerous sites and discussions I've had with friends that are just too numerous to mention. Suffice to say, there is a lot more out there for you to discover. Let's finish with my favourite segment, I spend too much time alone. I kept putting off working on this episode because I find the song so haunting, so layered, that emotionally it can just be hard to deal with. As I said earlier, when I first heard the song, I figured it was about the character in the play. But when the film clip was released on the 7th of January 2016, the way Bowie moved bothered me. I'd noticed his movements in Black Star, but here those moves are even more pronounced, specifically when Bowie's in his trickster persona. He struts and poses, and while there's a hint of a smile never far from his lips, the movements look sore, like he doesn't have any fluid in his joints. He was also looking older, much older than the man in the next day clips. Once again, he was looking different in Black Star as well, but there was so much to take in with that video that it hadn't really affected me. But regardless of those observations, I cannot pretend that I thought the end was near. The film clip was released, and then the album the following day. Two days later, Bowie was gone. Knowing that he knew the end was near while filming the video also makes it hard to endure. Sometimes the song hurts me, especially the guitar parts that were played by Bowie on a sunburst Fender Stratocaster that his friend, rival and fellow glam icon Mark Boland gave to him as a present. Boland gave it to Bowie on his UK show Mark in September of 77, and you can see Bowie playing it on the clip that finishes that episode. Days later, Boland died in a car crash, and to hear Bowie play that guitar on this particular song is breathtakingly poignant. What is this song about? I think it's about how we can't allow the shallow joys of the world distract us from our true callings and that the past doesn't have to define the road we feel we must take. We have to keep moving forward, striving to be our best because in the end, death is inevitable. It lurks under the bed, in the wardrobe, under our desk, calling for us from the shadows. There will come a day we won't even be able to dream of great achievements, let alone strive for them in the material world. So do your best in the present and make the most of the time you have. There are so many tours I wish I'd been able to see, so many live performances I would have killed to experience. But there's one that I have learned of that stands out. Bowie knew he was dying, but only a few people around him knew. He made his final album, he filmed his final video, and he was often in attendance watching his final play come to life. A couple of months before it opened, Bowie attended a run-through performance of Lazarus. When it was all over, the band leader, Henry Hay, asked Bowie, Is everything okay? Would you like anything else? Yes, Bowie replied. I think I'd like a sing. The band took their place and began to play Lazarus. I wish I'd been there to see this last performance, an audience made up of actors, musicians, tech crews and stage managers, all creatives in their own right, all there experiencing Bowie, standing there, singing. Look up here, I'm in heaven. Ain't that just like him? Thank you for listening. I look forward to your company for our next episode of Big Squid Black Star. Until then...